Welcome to the Shades of Hope podcast. This is a frank conversation between two friends who care deeply about the case for racial justice as it's presented in the gospel. In this podcast, we'll cover where racial justice shows up in the Bible, why it's important for pastors to be in conversation, God's urgency for this work, and how the church can start conversations for the work of racial justice. Welcome to another episode of Shades of Hope. My name is Jeff Krajewski, and I'm here with my friend, Pastor Clarence Moore, and we are excited to share our conversations on the importance of addressing race in the church today. And today in particular, we want to talk about how to start a conversation on race in the church, and particularly for white pastors, how they should approach what is potentially a loaded subject In previous episodes, we have been talking about why we should have these conversations, which is important both theologically, biblically, historically, and culturally. But the next question that we really want to get into today is how do we begin? Pastor Moore, how you been? Been doing wonderful, my brother. Hanging in there, you know, trying to to live each day uh, in full vitality and trying to, to meet the needs of the day. And uh, Mm -hmm. I'm excited about our time together uh, in this fifth episode of Shades of Hope. I did want to say something, though. You know, you in your introduction, you used a word that I want to talk about for a moment. You said for most white pastors, it's a loaded conversation. Yeah. But for the African-American pastor, it's a lived conversation. Mm, Say a little bit more about that. Yeah. You know, we live this every day, this environment of the racialization of America. Mm-hmm. And but for the white pastor, it's loaded because oftentimes there is maybe some misunderstanding on what that really is and what that's like coming from a place, not in all cases, but most cases, a place of privilege, but also the pushback that pastors may get from beginning to even think about what you and I are going to talk about today and how to start a conversation on race in our churches. And so unfortunately, I hate that we have to use the word loaded, but I think it is a realistic statement. And I just wanted to to say that from my perspective, it's not loaded, it's lived every day of our lives. Yep. And I think that's what's been so helpful for me in taking the conversation seriously is to not only view the conversation and the world through my lens exclusively. Yeah. Or to assume that my lens is the correct lens and we need to figure out how to get everybody else's perspective to match mine, but to really have someone who can help me to see the same situation from a completely different perspective and it be true. Right. Absolutely. And so I think for me, and you know, it's really interesting. I feel like that was the Peter story, Peter and Cornelius in the book of Acts. Yes. Now, I feel like that was the gift to Peter wasn't the salvation of Cornelius, but actually the transformation of Peter. Yeah. You know what I mean? He he had to get sent to a place to meet with people before he even walks into the door. <laughs> he says, you know, it's not right for me, a Jew, to be with you, a Gentile. And they're like, yeah, 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 whatever. Yeah. Get in here right. so that you can see that God doesn't see us the way that you see us. 
Right, right. How did Jesus start? Because I think it was another encounter with Jesus and Peter. How did Jesus start that conversation? He told Peter to slay and eat. Yes. And, and Peter talked about the fact that I can't eat that. That's defiled. And Jesus began to bring forth some kind of a preparation that how dare you call what I have created defiled? Yep. How dare you look down with your privileged self? on what I have created. And so he begins to sensitize Peter concerning his traditional understanding of certain things. What do you think, though? You headed somewhere with that, Jeffrey. What were you headed? Well, I think for me, locating myself in the story is always very helpful in trying to figure out how the text impacts me. And so when I put myself in that story, when I put myself in Peter's place— what I gain from that interaction is that I need a Cornelius. Mm. Like I am a person who has experienced life from a cultural construct that is hundreds of years in the making. Peter experienced his life through a cultural and religious construct yeah. that was hundreds of years in the making. And he needed a supernatural encounter with someone who was from the place that he believed defiled him to help him see that it was indeed true that God doesn't show favorites. <laughs> yeah. But he couldn't see that on his own. Absolutely. And so I think that for me, when I start to think about how we have a conversation, what I realize is that I need to find people who can help me to see what I am blind to because of the cultural conditioning I've had. That's a great, great point. And, and, and I would say religious, spiritual condition as well. I mean, that's reinforced theologically over time as well, but particularly in terms of seeing the world through different eyes. Yeah. And that's what's been beautiful about a relationship is that you've helped me, even my language in the introduction, using the word loaded. You're like, well, that's a very interesting perspective from your perspective, <laughs> but lived from my perspective. And I think that's an example of how we move Absolutely. in this space. Yeah. You know, we talked earlier segments and episodes about proximity and that's what proximity does. It allows you to get into spaces and places where you can begin to learn from others. You know, Cornelius from a, a spiritual perspective, you know, he loved God just as much as Peter did. And God saw that, mm -hmm. but he was missing some theological principles that Peter had. And so Cornelius had no problem with this Jew coming to his house. Mm -hmm. Peter had a problem going into the Gentile space. Yes. When you're looking, my brothers and sisters, for a Cornelius, make sure you find one that has a very godly perspective. Mm -hmm. Because that's going to be critical, especially when those times come, when there is friction and where there could be even some disagreement. You're going to have to be in proximity with a brother who loves God just as much as you do. But again, I think one of the main principles is that God was showing Peter, as you said earlier, that he's no respecter of persons, that he loves for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Yeah. Here's the thing. That revelation that Peter had in Cornelius's house, that God does not show favorites, 
had always been true. God said it in the Old Testament. Well, that's true. He told the people of Israel yeah. that they needed to pay attention to the stranger because I don't show favorites. Right. And so the reason Peter needed to see this new revelation to Peter, which was really an old revelation that had been renewed, <laughs> was because there was a system constructed, both religious and cultural, yes. that came together to elevate one particular group of people above others, not as God's chosen people, but as God's only people. And that needed to be dismantled in Peter's mind to get back to God's original intent. Absolutely. Which is that I love everyone. Absolutely. And think about this. It took Peter days to experience the Holy Spirit in the upper room. Mm -hmm. But at Cornelius' house, Peter barely got his mouth open. And God sent the Holy Ghost into that space to the uncircumcised Gentiles, to the non-Jew. You know, God has a way of teaching lessons in a powerful way. And Peter was like, wow, what is this? The Holy Spirit came immediately after Peter began to speak, where it took Peter into the Jewish or the original church. They were there for hours and days, waiting and caring for the Holy Spirit. So God has a way of just blowing our minds mm -hmm. when we get around other people that may not be like us. And then he begins to show us how he is with them, too. Yeah. No altar call, right? They didn't even have to pass the plate. No, that's right. He didn't have no altar call. And here comes the Holy <laughs> Ghost. And I think, you know, practically, there has to be a willingness to humble yourself yeah. and acknowledge that you don't know what you don't know. And that, I think, has been just very true for me. I have always operated under the idea of the pastor has to have theological certainty and correctness, and you cannot show weakness. And I think the relationship that you've allowed to happen here has given me the permission to say, I just, I don't know. I've been misinformed. I've been uninformed. And that has been hurtful and dangerous to my brothers and sisters. So true. That's tough. It's just hard. It's hard to be in a position where we've said as a pastor and a leader, you have to have everything figured out to be able to be like, you know what? I don't, I don't have everything figured out and I need to learn. Yeah. And you and I started this whole journey over a cup of coffee. Mm -hmm. You know, how do we begin this conversation between the white church and the black church? It has to start with the two leaders. Mm -hmm. And that leadership beginning has to be a slow but progressive journey. And that's how we started the conversation. It was you and I started first, just genuinely seeking to support each other pastorally, personally, but realizing that, well, maybe at the time, not realizing that God had a bigger plan for our friendship and our workings together. And, and look where we are now, basically developing our own podcast around this subject of how to start this conversation with the congregations. Yeah, and I think what you gave me was courage to have conversations that weren't just in a restaurant booth over coffee, right? So <laughs> that's a level of this, but I also have, you know, responsibility and accountability in that relationship because you would always ask me, so why does the church X, Y, and Z? And I'm like, oh man, that's my church. <laughs> 
(laughs) So it's like now I have the responsibility to open these conversations beyond just the safety of the booth, right? Yeah. I need to talk to people in my congregation. I need to take some steps that can feel very dangerous at times to begin to open up our congregation to the same conversations. I just think that when it comes to justice, that we miss the mark in our hermeneutic and in our holistic approach to ministry when we don't learn the skills of how to communicate the importance of justice just as we do the importance of Sunday school or small groups. So, you know, as I just enumerated this whole premise of mine, that I think we as theologians, as prophets to the culture, it's critical that we begin to have justice as part of our preaching schedule during the year, because God is very concerned about how we treat one another, regardless of one's ethnicity or pigmentation. So how did you, because I have been so impressed with your stick to in this arena. And how did you continue this conversation from just our cup of coffee in the booth back to your church? Yeah, I mean, for me, it started with our church polity is elder board. And so our elders are the overseers, the spiritual caretakers of our congregation. And I just started with them and said, hey, This is where I've come to. This is how I got there. And I'd like for us to continue this journey together. And, you know, that took some time. I mean, there was a lot of conversation around whether this is, you know, the most important thing we need to be paying attention to right now, or if it's, you know, when we talk about reconciliation, do we have to talk about only race or do we have to start with race? It seems like it's such a contentious topic. And so we had to just really wrestle as a leadership community to get to the point where there was unity in saying, yes, wow, this is an important topic and we need to get there. And so I just knew going into it that it wasn't just going to be a, hey, let's start talking about race in our church, that I was going to have to give them some of the same time that I had to take as well to get into that space of how important this is. Wow. So this process, for you began with proximity of being around myself. Mm-hmm. And then you increasing your awareness of this whole conversation around race and how do I move my membership to begin the, that process. You started with your leadership. Yep. Wow. So after that conversation with the leadership, did you have some leaders leave the church or did you, did you get emails? Well, I've gotten lots of emails, but <laughs> the good news is that no, our, our leaders were prayerful and careful in discerning this and came to the conclusion that we needed to be actively engaged in uncovering the sins of racism and how the church has been complicit in that. And so we didn't lose any of our elders or our key leaders. In fact, what we found was that many of them we're already well down the road ahead of us. Wow. And we're wondering when we collectively were going to, you know, step into this as a congregation. But I will say that we did count the cost. You know, I think that's an important piece in this. Like 
you know, we've lost congregants and, you know, folks move on for different reasons. Sometimes they tell you what it is and sometimes they don't, but you know, it, it hurts, you know, when, when people who you have walked life with and loved and been loved by and cared for and been cared for by say, we can no longer, you know, walk this road with you. And yeah, that, I mean, I want that to be a completely honest truth about what this means for, and this is where I talked about that potentially loaded space for the white church. This is, it's just really hard yeah. because right now there's a really big push against anything that could hint to racial justice as a component of the gospel. And so there's a lot of positioning and accusations that are happening. And if you say this, then you're this. And, you know, those things have been said and it just, it hurts. Yeah. And so there's a cost involved. I've, we've had this conversation before and there's a cost involved for you when we don't have the conversation. Yes. And there's a cost when we stand before the Lord. Yep. And we have neglected that responsibility in our leadership as it relates to teaching the sheep. So you can't lead them until you feed them. Mm. And so I think that that's the higher cost. And so what I love about you, because I've been in relationship with other white brothers who at that point got off the wagon and said it's not worth it when they got a little pushback. And so as we talk about beginning this conversation with our congregations, we talked about, you know, starting having a peer that you can spend some time with, getting your leadership on board. And each of those levels is going to be a cost to you, to all of my white brothers and sisters that are listening to us right now. But you saw that there was a greater call on your life to continue down that road. And then what did you go from there after you began to embrace your leadership? Because I remember you telling me that, that it took a lot of preparation to get your church to, to where they are today. Yeah, and I don't want to say that we've arrived in any right. stretch of the imagination. We're very much still in process. But we needed voices from the outside to help us, help guide us. And so that was in books, but also in people. And so we've had you know folks come in that have been able to help us walk through the process I think it would be presumptuous to think that we have enough perspective to substantively change the way that we're, we're, you know, our system is perfectly designed to get the results that we're getting. So unless somebody comes in and helps us to look at the system that's not in the system, system's probably not going to change. And so that's just been really helpful for us to have voices from the outside looking in who have our best interest in mind and are able to kind of point out those places where growth still needs to happen. So, so that's pretty powerful. So you literally brought in subject matter experts, individuals that could speak to your leadership mm-hmm. concerning the whole thing of social justice. You made that investment. Yes. So a lot of pastors would have gotten on a slower train and would have probably just say, let's just invite Pastor Moore to come preach at our church. Mm-hmm. And that would have fulfilled in their minds, sent a message that, hey, you know, we like black people. We had a black pastor come and preach. Yep. 
you you went beyond that. Talk to me a little bit about that, you know, because I don't like being tokened. Yes. And I think the reality is that we wanted to not project something. We wanted to fundamentally change something. And that's why for us, you know, starting with the leadership, we needed to commit that this was a process that was going to take a long time and that likely you know, even just thinking about this in the scope of what we're thinking about, our lifetime is not going to probably experience some of the downstream good effects of the work that we're doing now. But we want to set up the future generations to be able to go beyond where we were. So we just knew that this was a long process, that it was not about changing what we look like, changing what we sound like. Right. It, it's not about a diversity experiment or <laughs> project. It's really just about like a fundamental shift in the way that we understand who we are as followers of Jesus. And we knew that because of that, we're essentially being re-discipled in a way that is consistent with who Jesus is and not what we have inherited. Wow. It's pretty powerful. I would also just say that like one of the challenges of this is that we are in a cultural moment right now where there is a social narrative around race and rightly so, people want to see change. The church has a framework for understanding how we navigate this, and we've not picked it up and applied it to this particular story. There's a, always a Jesus narrative. One of the things that we talk about regularly is what's the cultural narrative, and then what's the Jesus narrative? And oftentimes what we realize is that we have intentionally probably tried to make the cultural narrative sound like the Jesus narrative, mm. and they're just not the same. The Jesus narrative is very different and it's very particular and it always is on the side of the oppressed. If you want to find Jesus, you go to the place where people are being oppressed and you find him. Absolutely. And so the pushback that I get oftentimes comes from the positions of power. Well, that makes sense because that's always a place we, we want to protect. Right. But if we want to be with Jesus, we always have to find the people who are being oppressed by the systems that are in place. And that's where we go. Those are who we listen to. And those are the folks that help lead us into the space of the kingdom. Wow. So, you know, we just finished celebrating the 4th of July. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so many Christians in the white church have, in essence, wrapped themselves up in the flag. Mm -hmm. As you're talking about this whole uh, dichotomy of the Jesus narrative and the cultural narrative. And I'm sure you fighting this, too, where, unfortunately, when you start wanting to have this conversation in your church, people want to say it is a political conversation. I don't want to I want to get into that political conversation and what. I'm trying to construct and what you and I are trying to uh, redefine is that this is not just a political conversation. It's mainly a moral and righteous conversation and that don't allow the culture and let's not allow the politicalization to get in the way of, of our movement as a church. And when I say as a church, I mean the big C church. Because I think that's going to be critical as we move forward. Well, and I think that's a part of the shift of the narrative. We have to recognize what stories we're living by. And is it a, you know, politically informed story or is it a kingdom informed story? And right now, I think just honestly, the loudest voices right now in formation are 
are you this or are you that? Yeah. Right? Are you yeah. are you left or are you right? Yeah. And, and then and in a political system, it works great because now you know who your enemy is, right? What did Jesus say? Love your enemy. Right. <laughs> Pray for those who. Pray. So like we have to pull ourselves out of that dominant formation narrative and put ourselves in the position of the kingdom narrative. Yeah. So like, yeah, when we first sat down with our leadership team and our elders in particular, we wanted to make sure that we had a formed biblical vision for justice. And turns out it's been there all along, but we've just not been paying attention to it. And so we really wanted a foundation from the scriptures, Old Testament, New Testament, Gospels. What does Jesus have to say? And so that was kind of our starting point. And so we went through a lot of the texts, Ephesians, 2 Corinthians, Sermon on the Mount, the vision that Isaiah had in for what shalom would look like practically. And then we read a book, the book at the time that we started our conversation was Jamar Tisby's The Color of Compromise. Wow. And then we spent, you know, six months in regular meetings where we would get together as elders and we would talk through the chapter of the book. And Jamar does a great job at kind of framing racism historically within the church. And so it was eye-opening for us to see just how much we didn't know about history and particularly how much we didn't know about church history and racism. And once you start to get the right story in terms of our past, the snowball starts to go. Biblically, this is what God has been doing. Historically, this is what the church has been doing outside of the United States. So so let me, let me ask a quick question, Jeffrey. So your elders are all white? Mm-hmm. Wow. You started this conversation with a group of white men in the space. And women. I just think that's phenomenal uh, that you literally walked into the space with no diversity and began this conversation. I know you've made some steps now to ratify that. But mm-hmm. wow, I just think that's important for a brother or sister who's listening, how you stepped into that space with all white men and women in the room. It's pretty neat. And we took some considerable time in that space with just us. We weren't yeah. trying to change the whole church in a in a year. <laughs> right. And and then we brought in our key leaders. So what would be deacon sorts of leaders in most churches. And we did the sort of the same thing with them. We went slowly, biblical foundation, some good history, and some outside voices that could help us see a little more clearly the work that needed to be done. Wow. that I think that is extraordinary. As I said earlier, you know, you can't lead them until you feed them. And your commitment to making sure that you're preaching relevant sermons and that your ministry is relevant today, I think God is going to indeed bless your efforts. And as people may have left your ministry, I'm sure there are others that are going to come because they see the direction that common ground is trying to take in this new era. Mm -hmm. And I would just add that I had to get beyond the metric of fruitfulness, how many people are coming, yeah, and had to get to the metric of faithfulness. And I know God blesses that. And it's the constant challenge of one pulling us in one direction and God calling us in the other. And so I think faithfulness leads to fruitfulness. Fruitfulness doesn't always mean faithfulness. 
Right. And so that switch in my mind had to happen so that I wasn't always thinking about this in terms of the numbers of whatever. People coming or people going, for that matter. We need to be faithful. So, Jeff, I know you're talking about faithfulness opposed to fruitfulness because, you know, fruitfulness is something that all pastors live to see and to realize. Mm -hmm. But realistically, there are some brothers and sisters listening to us that realize that this conversation is indeed, as you said earlier in the segment, a costly one. How did you deal with the fact that you may have gotten so much opposition that you may have lost your pastorate? What advice would you give to our white brothers and sisters who may be taking stances in the arena of social justice that take on the risk of losing their jobs? Yeah, I've heard of pastors who have tried to step into this space and have lost their jobs. And it sometimes happens very quickly and in a very, you know, what I would consider to be almost unchristian way. Yeah. Yeah. So the real concern of our jobs, our livelihood is something that we should consider. And we should weigh that then with the ultimate concern of our discipleship and our fellowship of Jesus. And when he sent out the disciples that first time in Matthew chapter 10, he sends out the 12 and he's just like, hey, listen, you're going to go into places where people are not going to like you. They're going to run you out of town. They're going to probably throw you in jail. He's like, listen, that's what they did to me. The student is not above the teacher and there is a cost to faithfulness. But then I, I go to the end of Matthew, right? In Matthew 25, where Jesus says, when you've done it unto the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you've done it unto me. Yeah. And I'm like, what is most important for me if I truly believe that Jesus is the king of the universe? Whose praise am I most interested in responding to? And I think part of the reason why we don't have these conversations a lot is because we still, as pastors, haven't quite yet bought into the reality that Jesus is our Lord. Absolutely. That our job's not our Lord and that he is the one who owns a cattle on a thousand hills. Yeah. And like faithfulness, we will be taken care of, but it's an absolute real part of this conversation for a lot of white pastors in a lot of white spaces. So, Yeah. Well, I do think I've learned in my 31 years of of ministry is, you know, how we process change, how we introduce change is critical. And your process of first personally coming to grips and hearing the Holy Spirit in this arena. And then secondly, sitting down with your leaders and wrestling with it. I think that's a great progressive way to deal with it. And so when they buy into, when you are feeding them before you lead them, then you're moving into the congregation. That is a great way to begin the whole process of dealing with starting a conversation in one's church about the importance of race and social justice. It's just spending some time with your leaders and saying, hey, this is on my heart, guys. And this is where I'm hearing God say, we'll break his heart we don't begin to start dealing with some of these conversations. And so, yeah, the way you've dealt with it, I think it helps limit or lessen, I should say, the probability that you're going to lose your position. You're going to have some pushback, of course. But I like the way you started out this conversation. And now it's all in your congregation. And so I'm hoping we'll talk more about that a little later. Yeah. Thank you. And just think as we close out our time together here, how Dr. King's letter from the Birmingham jail would have been so different 
if white pastors of that day had had a different response to this whole theme of faithfulness versus fruitfulness, because Dr. King alluded in the letter from that Birmingham jail that he saw the large choirs and the large educational facilities, but why were they silent as their fellow man was struggling in uh, this arena of inequities and disparities? So I love the fact that you're moving your congregation in the right direction. Thank you for your help. Thank you for being there. Thank you for joining us today. We would love to hear from you. Send us your questions and your comments via email. We have a Gmail address, shadesofhopepodcast at gmail.com. That's shadesofhopepodcast at gmail.com. And if this podcast has been helpful to you, we would love for you to share it with others. Follow us or subscribe and review us on your preferred podcast platforms. Give us five stars. That's going to help everybody find us faster. And so until next time, thanks for joining us. Be blessed. Thank you for listening to the Shades of Hope podcast, part of the Center for Congregations podcast network. If you like this episode and think it would be helpful for others, please take a moment to rate and review it on iTunes. 